This week on the show, we're celebrating our 100th episode. To say thanks to you, we're giving away copies of J.D. Greer's Gaining by Losing, as well as Andy Johnson's Missions, How the Local Church Goes Global from Nine Marks, two VIP tickets to our preview day at ABWE, and a Swagalicious Send One t-shirt. Stay tuned to learn how to win. And now, enjoy our 100th episode as we tackle some big topics with one of our favorite friends of the show. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for APWE International, joined yet again by Scott Dunford, Lead Church Planter for Redeemer Church in Fremont, California, and West Coast Mobilizer. And Scott, as we were talking with our current guest before we got on the line, we have an intergenerational, a truly multi-generational uh, lineup on the show today, don't we? We do. We have you as our uh, token millennial. Proudly. Uh, me as the kind of angsty, <laughs> angsty Gen Xer and got Zane Pratt, um, our our resident baby boomer. This is great. Well, I learned not that long ago that um, me and Zane are actually putting up pretty much the same amounts of weight in the gym, um, at least on, you know, the major compound lifts. So, Scott, I'm not sure. How are you? How are you doing? At that I'm pretty lately, much where uh, you and Zane Scott. are. I'm guessing I'm pretty much where you and Zane are at. Uh, maybe, you know, I doubt a little. Maybe, maybe about the same. Maybe a little. Maybe a pound or two less. Um, <laughs> Just a pound or two. Yeah. Well, OK, yeah. we we don't want to assume anything. You know, we have new listeners from time to time and we do need to introduce Zane. He does deserve an introduction. Zane Pratt is the vice president of training for the International Missions Board. And Zane, we want to allow you to introduce yourself as well, too. But we also had a previous conversation with Zane a little while back on some different uh, topics relating to methodology and uh, how we apply some of those things on the field. Uh, but Zane is a, a phenomenal thinker. Uh, missiologist and practitioner uh, of everything that we talk about here as well. And uh, you might recognize him as well from uh, places like Desiring God and uh, the Cross Conference. But uh, Zane, tell us more about yourself and um, and what you do with the IMB. Well, besides the fact that, that I am the only person in this conversation with a white beard, hence the uh, baby boomer <laughs> designation. Um, yeah, so what I do with the International Mission Board is oversee the development and delivery of training. And we, we see ourselves facing three directions. And that's creating and delivering training for churches to help them understand the Great Commission and their role in it better. Uh, training for, uh, for workers, cross-cultural workers who are going to be deploying overseas. And then also helping to develop uh, training, everything from discipleship to advanced theological education for uh, national believers and leaders uh, overseas that our workers are working with in, in those settings. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, get to look in a lot of different directions at once and hopefully apply both uh, 23 years of living overseas myself and, um, and some pretty um, uh, painfully at times honed theological convictions to, uh, to bring that to bear mm -hmm. on what we do. Well, and unfortunately, I guess you would say you were demoted from the field and from working in Central Asia with Muslims, and now you've been demoted to Richmond, basically. That's exactly right. Uh, it, it is a serious demotion. Um, anyone who was on the front lines in, uh, in the work of the Great Commission mm -hmm. is, is at the highest rank, in my mind. 
Well, yeah, that's the goal of our podcast um, is to help goers think and thinkers go and to connect these two kind of worlds that tend to remain isolated from each other. There's a lot of people on the internet that want to talk about theology and listen to podcasts about theology. Right. Um, and then the realm of praxis in missions tends to remain separate from that. Mm. And it forms mm. two echo chambers that we don't think are helpful. But, you know, you mentioned something that I'd like to dive in just on that note. We were talking, you and I, a while back, just having a personal conversation about the importance of your approach to missions flowing straight out of your theology. But you said that you reached some of your convictions on, on missiological issues pretty painfully. Mm -hmm. Um, Describe a little bit about that. What does that mean for you? Well, what that means is that when you're stepping into a, um, a cross-cultural environment, uh, especially one in which perhaps no one has ever worked before, um, you find yourself experimenting. You find yourself checking things out. Uh, also, if you're in the missiological world, you're, you're running into all sorts of different methodologies that are proposed in various ways. And uh, there have been any number of occasions, for instance, even in terms of issues of contextualization in the Muslim world, where I've had a bright idea and had it um, basically crash and burn. Um, and the thing that has become clearer and clearer to me is that we, we not only don't start with praxis, we don't even start with context, that we have to start from biblically grounded theology and work our way from there. Um, and in many ways, that, that helps us at least winnow through some of the methodological possibilities that lie in front of us. We, we're starting from the place of theology, and especially as you're entering into a, like a missiological context, uh, how do you check yourself? You know, we, we can look backwards in history and see all these examples of, of missionaries, you know, coming into, a, coming into a setting, they're bringing their preconceptions, they're bringing their theology with them. And then we look back and go, well, they had all these huge blind spots that, that were culturally formed. Um, if, we're, if we're allowing our theology to lead us, how do we know uh, that our theology is actually coming from a good place and not so laden with cultural baggage from our host home culture that, that we're ruining where we're going? That's an excellent question. It, it, in my mind, it fits in the same category when we think about biblical hermeneutics. Um, because it is true that we all have blind spots we need more than one set of eyes on anything we do. And so in, in hermeneutics, we speak of a hermeneutical community. Um, supremely, that is the community of the church, but both our local church and the church around the world and the church through time, not because necessarily people from another place or another time are, are smarter than we are or mm-hmm. have fewer mm-hmm. blind spots than we do. They just have different blind spots. Mm-hmm. I, I think of... Um, C.S. Lewis's argument for the value of reading old books in the introductory essay he wrote in an edition of, of uh, Athanasius's The Incarnation of the Word of God. And he makes a very persuasive argument. He said, it would be just as useful to read books from the future, but we don't have access to those. <laughs> Again, have a different set of blinders on so that they're likely to challenge us at the point of our blinders. And that's why, as much as possible, missiology needs to be a conversation that includes biblical scholars and theologians. It needs to include a good look at history, and it needs to include committed evangelical scholars from other cultural settings than our own. 
uh, we need to talk to each other because we'll point out each other's blind spots. That's related to something that you hear said um, often. I'd love for you to interact with this thought. So sometimes you'll hear people kind of throw out um, the statement to the effect of all theology is cultural or maybe all theology is contextual. Um, so how, how would we, how would we unpack that statement? Is that true? Um, or in what sense is that true? In what sense is that not true? Um, because it's, it's, it's obvious that coming from a certain cultural background is just going to condition you to understand certain parts of biblical backgrounds uh, more easily than others. And in that way, believers from different uh, cultures and backgrounds can really help each other round out um, our interpretations, but we're also not relativizing all of scripture through the lens of culture. So how would you address that? Well, yeah, I mean, taken too far, that, that would lead us to basic theological nihilism. We'd, we'd have no hope at all of, of understanding scripture. I think there are three things that play into that as I think about it. One of those is to apply Grant Osborne's concept of the hermeneutical spiral to the issue of theology. Um, theology, sorry, guys, theology affects mm. us and it affects us in ways that help us then to do a better job with our theology. Um, another um, thing that, that comes to play in this in my mind is the recognition that although it is certainly true that different cultures need to address different issues, mm. uh, there are certain themes in Scripture that are so central that they must be central to the theology of any culture. And so we don't necessarily have cultural relativism when we're thinking about the fact that Christian theology must be theocentric, must be Christological in nature, uh, must address the issue of humanity in the image of God and badly marred and utterly guilty in sin. Um, the, you know, the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of the church. These are things that are central to Scripture, and so they must be central to anyone's theology regardless of what their cultural setting is. But then there are also issues that may change from culture to culture simply because it's a more pressing issue one place than another. Um, even thinking in terms of passage through time and its impact on what we emphasize theologically, I think of my own denomination's statement of faith. It, right. The 1963 edition did not address when life begins because nobody was asking that question. Uh, it was assumed that life began at conception. By the, by the year 2000, that was no longer an assumption at all. And so our, our statement of faith had to address it. We had to, to speak to that issue from Scripture in ways we hadn't had to in the past because our culture had changed. Um, in the same way, there, there are other cultures, for example, that are far more conscious of what Scripture has to teach about the spirit world than Western culture does. They may need to address that in ways that Western culture doesn't need to. Uh, things like that. So there, there is um, a core to theology that is simply that which is central to Scripture itself. And then the third thing that I would say is that uh, our culture itself has been shaped by interaction with Scripture and Christian theology for 2,000 years. And I think we should not lightly dismiss that historical heritage. Um, it's, it's incredibly valuable to us. Uh, one of the reasons why I believe that historical theology is an essential discipline. Um, we've had ancestors in the faith, and they themselves in a variety of cultural settings, interact with issues 
in the light of scripture for 2000 years. Let's learn from them. I think everything you're saying, a great example of that would be the discussion over honor and shame versus some other cultural paradigms, guilt and innocence or fear and power. We did an episode on that ourselves, but you know what, what one, one application I can think of of what you're saying is where scripture, you know, does emphasize guilt and the the courtroom and the the legal analogies that are used for justification for our righteousness. Um, we don't we don't have the option of um, interchanging them. If 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 scripture is putting more emphasis on the legal analogies, we should put the emphasis there, and not necessarily uh, make all of the the different cultural emphases that we could have on an issue like that. Um, completely on equal footing with one another. Is, is that one one area you would go, one direction you'd take that? I certainly would. I believe that Scripture actually has within it the, 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 the guilt and righteousness theme, the shame and honor theme, and the fear and power theme. Uh, they're all three in the Word of God. Uh, I think, though, a, it, it's, it's, it seems fairly clear to me that the guilt and righteousness theme is the primary one, and the other two are derivative. And so why is there shame? There is shame because of transgression. There's shame because of guilt. Um, why is there fear? There is fear because of, because of guilt and its consequent broken relationship with God. So uh, it, it certainly is totally legitimate to address honor and shame issues in honor and shame cultures but never at the expense of just sort of setting aside the guilt and, and righteousness theme. So I was reading recently, I was, I was going through some uh, poems uh, and songs by Isaac Watts. And um, one, one author was highlighting uh, how he, he actually did an, a, a, a um, translation of the Psalms and he ended up putting some of them are beautiful. And we, we sing some of them in our, in our churches. Um, Jesus shall reign where the sun mm-hmm. is one of those, uh, one of those Psalms that yeah. he translated. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you kind of get into some of the things that don't actually make our hymnal, he ends up putting uh, it, he ends up putting great Britain in a, in a central place uh, as the fulfillment of some of this stuff. And, and you see like, Hey, I like, I love Isaac Watts. I even, you know, he, yes. my son is one of his one of my son's middle names is Watts, and I uh, really appreciate him. But you see highlighted there a a blind spot theologically where he was importing his culture yep. into this theological mm-hmm. discussion that now you look back and just kind of groan, like how in the world could he see himself and see England in that way? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's an element of it seems like to me, at least and I want I, I need you to push back on this if if I'm wrong. This some in some ways systematic theology is an attempt to answer our, the questions we bring to the text, um, and 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 trying to reconcile what does the Bible say about this topic um, for the same reasons you kind of mentioned, like the fact that you know the Baptist faith and message um, is different today than it was in 1960 now because the Bible has changed, but because the questions are different. Uh, there's no question of inerrancy in the, there's no statement on inerrancy in the London Baptist Confession of 1689, for instance, you know. Uh, so, so how, in what, in what way do we, allow, should we allow, and, and how as missionaries can we work with the people we're dealing with, not to just bring in, okay, here's my Wayne Grudem systematic theology or whatever systematic theology I like. Here's what we're going to learn. Um, 
what's the balance between doing that, um, teaching them the things that we our our culture is asking and the theological the theological development of history and also allowing the space to help them ask their questions and let the Bible respond to those. How, how do we, how do we do that as a missionary? How do we do that work of, of letting the people we're ministering to in these new churches uh, do the work of self theologizing, if that's the right term? Yeah. Well, of course, as we're teaching scripture, we are being theological in the process. Um, there, there's no such thing as a non-theologian. Um, everybody engages in theological analysis. Everybody engages in theological teaching. Anytime, anytime you do more than simply quote scripture, and even when you quote scripture, you're doing the theological task of concluding that this passage addresses this right. issue. Um, right. So that's, that's going to be there anyway. I think part of it is to make sure that people have a, a, a big picture view of the Bible, um, that we don't just restrict their consumption to the little bits that are our mm-hmm. favorite parts. Or even to the little bits that we conclude that best fit their culture. One, one of the dichotomies that I often hear that makes me a bit uncomfortable is the idea that oral cultures should primarily study the narrative parts of scripture and not the more didactic parts. Um, I, I have commented on a number of occasions that the book of Romans was written in an oral culture setting to a primarily illiterate church uh, where it simply would be read out loud and, and it only represents a manner of teaching that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul thought appropriate for such a congregation. It also represents the level of theological depth that he thought was essential for brand new Christians, which is what would mostly be in such a church. Um, so we need to make sure that we we don't restrict the biblical diet of the people that we're, that we're teaching. Um, I think it's also important that we make sure that we refer back to the text for the answers rather than to our favorite theologians of days gone by. Um, and I say that as somebody who loves the theologians of days gone by. But at, at the same time, we, we simply have to recognize that we are in many ways representatives of the global church through the ages. And that's actually okay. Um, that, that, that's sort of in the providence of God, the position that we are in. And yet then also say, all right, here's, here's questions that you're asking that, I mean, I didn't have that in a systematic theology course. Uh, let's look together at the word of God and see what all applies to that, that particular issue. And, and we may find ourselves surprised that they see texts of scripture applying to it that would not have occurred to us. So there, there's a combination of respect for what God has brought the church through for 2,000 years and a willingness to, to sort of entrust people to the word of God and the spirit of God. Well, we want to dive a little bit more into that in just a moment. And so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with Zane Pratt. This week, we are celebrating our 100th episode. And to say thank you to our listeners, we're giving away a copy of Gaining by Losing by J.D. Greer, Missions by Andy Johnson, two passes to ABWE's 24-hour demo in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and a fresh Send One t-shirt. Share a link to this episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and use hashtag missions podcast, hashtag 
Missions Podcast. That's it. We will announce winners Monday, October 21st. And why are we doing this? Just as a way of saying thank you. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners and join us to help goers think and thinkers go. Police in Santiago, Chile captured Cesar during an armed robbery. After the hardened gangster spent some time in solitary confinement, he emerged in a rage and rival inmates were ready to kill him too. Then he heard, Cesar, God is calling you. A group of Christian inmates encircled him to protect him from the other gangsters. This sudden act of compassion changed his heart. Soon he surrendered to Christ. Now he's training to become a pastor of a church plant in Santiago. But like many Latin American pastors, he's desperate for the theological education we take for granted. That's when an ABWE missionary met him and offered to pay for him to attend ABWE's seminary in Chile. Now he's only got two years left until he graduates and enters pastoral ministry. He doesn't talk about his testimony much. He only exudes kindness and warmth. ABWE is committed not just to reaching the least reached, but training national leaders. A gift to the Global Gospel Fund impacts the whole mission. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. And we're back. And Zane, one of the things that we value and I hear in in everything you're saying that you value as well is we want we want balanced missionaries and pastors, people who 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 respect historic theology, who respect systematic theology um, and who practice good biblical theology. Uh, They can hold those things um, as complements to each other. And they can actually go out and practice too, and to to be out there with their faith and to be on mission. Um, and it, it just seems like all these things are a sort of a, a knife's edge uh, balance. Uh, you can you can just fall into extremes on all sorts of sides with those things. Um, how do you navigate that? And I I do know that uh, when you were at the cross conference back in January, uh, you were able to draw a lot from the Psalms um, as to how we can do that and for missionaries who think. Right. Well, so my sort of opening argument in my sermon there is that theology, um, missiology, and doxology have to go together. That uh, our theology needs to shape and inform our worship, that worship has content, and that content is what Scripture teaches us about who God is and what He has done. So we can't separate theology from worship. Theology without worship um, is is dead orthodoxy. Um, the, the devil, after all, would affirm everything that is true as being true. He just hates it. And, and our apprehension of biblical truth needs to be accompanied by a delighting in it and a rejoicing over it in worship. And then both of those need to flow into our missionary practice Our theology, for example, is what helps us answer the question, what is the mission of the church anyway? What are we supposed to be about? Um, If you hold to what I regard as biblical convictions about the the holiness of God, uh, the sinfulness of humanity, uh, the just requirement of God that all sin receive its rightful due of the wrath of God and punishment in hell, um, and the amazing work of Jesus as our substitute, both in life and in death, uh, that there is salvation in no one else but him, and that salvation only comes through repentance and faith, and that's faith placed in a gospel that has been heard, then that's going to have 
radical implications for what you consider mission to be. And so we as an organization, and I know many others, including yours, have said the same, regard mission as, as fundamentally requiring sharing the gospel and calling people to repent and believe in it. Um, and that's shaped by our theology. And if we didn't believe the things we believed, then we could easily be moved into an approach to missions that uh, is just sort of vaguely and generically helping people or doing good. We're convinced that the worst thing that can happen is for someone to die and never hear the gospel. And so we feel impelled by our theology to an expressly evangelistic approach to missions. We also, because of our theology of the Christian life and of the church, think that planting churches is an essential component of it because the Bible has no conception of Lone Ranger Christians or to make disciples and disciples are made in the context of churches. So where there are no churches, we need to plant churches. And so we're not content just to be evangelistic or just to disciple people one-on-one. We feel compelled to uh, to make sure that all of that happens in the context of healthy churches that follow what we regard as biblical characteristics of those. And so in so many ways, we see we have to love God with our minds and know the truth of Scripture love God with our hearts and delight in the truth of that. And all of that has to overflow into a very theological approach to what we do as missionaries. So I I keep thinking about this nexus of culture and theology. I mean, uh, I'm on the, I'm in the Bay area. We're church planting Mm -hmm. Uh, the people that are coming to our church. Some of them are saved. Uh, Many of them are believers. Some, many, some of them aren't, some of them are, we're not sure, you know, Um, they're coming from all sorts of backgrounds and we don't, we're not even intentionally multi-ethnic or doing anything uniquely multicultural. Uh, It's just the Bay. So on a given Sunday, and I've said this before on here, you know, I've, like I'm, I'm looking thinking about my congregation on Sunday morning. I've got, you know, a family from Indonesia, uh, you know, a husband who's from Lebanon and his wife from Brazil. Uh, you know, we have people walking in from Africa or even the Middle East. Um, you know, we could just, you know, I've got another family. He's Russian. She's Vietnamese. You know, like on and on and on. I'm, I could just continue on um, as far as just the unique dynamic of the the mix. Um and they all, you know, those who are coming from a, you know, quote unquote Christian background all have these different experiences of how they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they've, they've grown up learning Christianity or not learning Christianity. Mm-hmm. And you go across town and you look at some of the, you know, the evangelical mega churches and, and, and you see this, you see a, a very American pers- you know, presentation of the gospel, you know, where it's mm-hmm. dimmed lights, very individual focused, you know, it's kind of a concert feel the messages are focused on the, an individual, you know, the individual. Well, one of the things that, that we've, you know, kind of come to, and and I I don't know if we're right or wrong yet. We'll see is that, that by kind of going back almost to a more traditional liturgy, it, it allows more of the, to use, you know, the, the term Catholicity of the church to kind of come through it in that, all the Christians, no matter where they're coming from, kind of can resonate with some of these traditional elements of Christ, of the Christian worship, um, which in some ways is kind of cutting cross culturally and allows different cultural Christians to 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 engage there. My my question for you is going back to this idea of tradition. Um, what is the role of the missionary you think in in helping these new believers or as you're establishing a church to understand the broader 
uh, Christian tradition and the way it's developed? Or is that something that that we should be avoiding? Mm. Well, let me start by saying I think you have incredible insight there uh, in terms of worship, which, again, I would argue worship is fundamentally theological in both in its structure and in its content, uh, that uh, we are not just sort of to do whatever we feel like. Um, if you read the Bible with with any care at all, you notice certainly in the Old Testament that God is quite particular about how he's to be worshipped. Um, there are things that he wants us to do, and there are things he wants us not to do. Um, the elements of worship are prescribed for us, I believe, in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. Sort of the more the, 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 the more simple and basically theological it is, the more it is cross-culturally applicable. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's a fantastic idea. In terms, though, of our role, there, there, there's been pendulum swings in the missionary world. Uh, I think certainly there was a time when missionaries thought it was their job to, to make good uh, middle-class Anglo-Saxons of everybody in the world mm-hmm. in every area of life. I now hear some people say, well, you don't teach them at all. You just hand them the Bible or point them to the Bible and let it do all of the teaching. Well, I, I don't find a missionary like Paul acting that way. I find right. him teaching and teaching quite authoritatively. <laughs> Um, and addressing cultural issues. I also see him referring to the Old Testament scriptures on a constant basis, as do all the apostles. So I think it's always going to be a matter of wisdom to ask ourselves, uh, to what extent are we to be authoritative in our teaching? And I can't help but Again, looking at Paul's example, think there's a pretty high degree to which we are to be quite, um, quite explicit in what we teach, and that that is inevitably going to include 2,000 years of church history and the way that impacts our understanding of the Bible. At the same time, I think we always, as, as good Protestants who hold to sola scriptura, uh, we need to make sure that we never appeal to tradition as an authority, uh, but that it just come up in the process, perhaps, of pointing to the Word of God and perhaps even saying, you know, scriptures in the uh, Christians in the past have wrestled with this. And in looking at the whole Word of God, here's the conclusions they've come to, and subsequent history hasn't proven them wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just make sure that we keep the Bible as the actual authority in the whole conversation. Yeah, to back up what you're saying, I have another friend who's a pastor um, in a different part of California. Sorry, Scott, not you, <laughs> but um, uh, you he, have other friends. Come on, Alex. Yeah, uh, it's hard to believe. There's there's not many. Um, I'm, I'm talking to two of them right now, but um, I only have I only have two others. And one of them is my wife. I'll say I know at least two other people <laughs> oh, who like you. So. Well, text me their names because I want to <laughs> I want to get them on speed. Dial. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, so my 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 other friend out here in California has a good relationship with a Muslim imam. And he meets with this uh, particular imam often. And this Muslim has told him on more than mm-hmm. one occasion. You know, I enjoy talking to you more than talking to my other Christian friends because you're the only one who I can actually pin down. Like, And the Muslim will say, you know, like, I know you're a Calvinist. I know you're a Baptist. I know you're this or that. 
Um, but the point is, is sometimes labels can be helpful in, in that, you know, we Christianity has been happening for 2000 years. And I think we lose credibility when we approach unbelievers as though that isn't the case. Um, whereas at least if we're honest about the different streams of tradition right. that exist and where we uh, may happen to fall in some of those, um, that we we can gain some intellectual credibility mm-hmm. um, on that front as well. And, you know, just one other story, too. Um, I was speaking with um, a missionary uh, in Tangier in Morocco who uh, he actually may be listening to this, uh, but he related to me uh, how in meeting with national pastors in North Africa, uh, he's taken them through an Arabic translation of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And he's seeing tears in the eyes of these uh, mm-hmm. North African church planters because they're saying, you know, some other missionaries um, have never showed us these things before. We never knew that there were documents that laid these things out. So systematically and clearly, we were always told, well, we don't want to impose American culture on you. And so here's a Bible and reach your own conclusions. Right. Um, it, it shows a, a real disconnect we have. Mm. I absolutely agree. I think, for instance, one of the things that I do when I teach classes in the seminary is begin by laying out my presuppositions. Here's where I'm coming from. And part of the reason for that is that when I was an undergrad in a rather liberal school, everybody assumed they had no presuppositions. Um, when I then got to Gordon-Conwell, where I went to seminary, I was refreshed by the fact that all of my professors themselves began by saying, here's where we're coming from. Um, th- th- this is the, the tradition in which we stand. This is the understanding of things in which we stand. And that's, that's honest, it's clear, it's helpful. Um, but I think, yeah, we, we unfortunately live in a, or at least we're coming out of a theologically reductionist era in which people don't want to um, stress any conclusions, certainly not about tertiary issues, often not even about secondary issues. Um, and yet at the same time, if you pin someone who says they're not theological down, if you pin them down and say, how are you saved? And they're an evangelical, they're going to give you a very explicit conclusion that, for instance, would be contrary to what the Council of Trent said. So um, I think it is a glorious thing to be honest and open and specific about our theological background and convictions. Mm. So, so we're, you know, we're kind of all agreeing here that it's important to teach theology. So if I can just put my, you know, devil's advocate hat on, I can, I could imagine that there's some who are listening that are like, well, here's, you know, there's so many abuses that have happened in the case of, of miss, missions and missiology where bad theology is imported. And, you know, like you even given some examples, you know, like, you know, colonialism would be a great example of how just unintentionally they started importing all these other ideas into the theology of the people they were ministering to. What are, what would you say, Zane, are some cautions? I mean, should we be loading up our backpacks full of Ryrie and Grudem and, you know, Erickson, I'm trying to think of frame, whatever systematic theology you love and start unpacking that, you know, what would you say as, as a missionary leader and somebody who's involved in training, what would be your cautions as we go ahead and start teaching systematic theology um, in, in all over the world? Well, certainly I don't think the solution is to translate our favorite systematic theology into every language of the world. Um, I would much rather us use our resources to translate the Bible into all the languages of the world. Um, 
at the same time, there is no question, but that I am shaped by my own reformational and Baptist perspective. And for that matter, I am shaped by the fact that I am a baby boomer American. Um, one of the things that happens as you engage in cross-cultural ministry, hopefully, is that you become more and more aware of the way in which you are shaped by your own cultural background and baggage. Um, I don't believe any of us ever come to a perfect understanding of that, but hopefully you come to a greater understanding of it. And you, and you begin to be sensitive to the fact that folks where you're working may be asking questions that you're not answering, but the Bible does answer and you need to start pointing to those. That's why I think that in every setting, ultimately, you need to have people with the same fundamental set of convictions who are writing theology, uh, who, who are writing theology that still maintains as central that which is central in Scripture, but that's going to be answering the questions uh, that are being asked in, in a given setting. And so I, I'm really excited, for instance, about some developments that are happening right now in Africa, where we are seeing... Uh, solid evangelical African theologians who are addressing some of the critical issues of something like prosperity teaching and its interaction with African traditional religions mm. wow. in ways that our writings might address even prosperity teaching more from an American consumer's perspective than from a, an ATR perspective. So things like that, we, we need to be drawing the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel into the conversation immediately because they're they're going to look at things in ways that we don't and the 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 work needs that perspective what what are some other things that you see happening in the world that encourage you right now uh you oversee a lot of work, a lot of global ministry. And so what most excites you um, in addition to what you're talking about in Africa? Well, I think one of the things that excites me is that I have seen a renewal in uh, concern for ecclesiology, um, li literally globally. And that doesn't mean replicating all of our programs, uh, but it does mean you know, just recognizing that there is more to, to church than where two or three are gathered together in his name will count it on our annual report. Um, that, that there is a fair bit in the scriptures that can be fleshed out in different ways in different cultural contexts, but that still will have a fundamental recognizability to it. That, yes, this is a church and it, it, it is engaging in biblical preaching and teaching. It has biblical membership. Um, it is uh, faithfully administering baptism in the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, it is, it is involved in mission and evangelism itself. Um, it has biblical leadership. Um, I'm seeing a renewed interest in that literally all over the globe, and that, that excites me a great deal. Um, I also see um, a recognition in many quarters, that contextualization is not for the purpose of making the gospel comfortable, but it's for the purpose of making the gospel clear. Um, and many of the conversations about levels of contextualization even recognize that the point is not how like or unlike American churches these churches are, but how like or unlike biblical churches these churches are. 
um, so that we aren't the standard by which things are evaluated. There, there's, there's stuff like that that's happening. Um, I'm seeing a greater concern for theological education in, in missionary circles, and that's been encouraging to me as well. So I think right now, in terms of theological issues, literally around the world, the biggest is prosperity teaching. And I am happy to begin seeing um, local theologians from a variety of settings start to step up and address that. That's good. You know, and and not to shift gears to something that might be more of a concern, too, but because you mentioned contextualization, I kind of see it here in the West. Maybe you do, too. Is there a danger of hyper contextualization oh, yeah. that I have to have my own approach to the gospel every time I'm talking to not only a, a Muslim or a Hindu, um, but also a, a, a male or female Muslim or a, 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 you know, you can you can break it up so many different ways uh, is, is you know, that's that's something that's affecting the missions community, too. Oh, absolutely. I think both in terms of evangelism and in terms of church planting. Um, there are dangers of hypercontextualization as much in North America as as anywhere else. Um, and and we forget sometimes that what saves someone is not the cleverness of my packaging. Mm. Uh, what saves someone is the spirit of God taking the truth of the gospel and taking and making a dead person alive. Um, that it's the gospel with the rough edges left in that ultimately is the gospel that has the power to save. So in our evangelism, I think there's that danger of fearing that I've got to get it just right, or, or perhaps I'm not going to share the gospel. Um, I would I would far rather have the gospel share widely without all the contextual nuances in than share not at all because we're afraid we don't have all the contextual nuances in. And in the same way, uh, I see North American churches as they increasingly try to be almost like consumer driven, um, becoming over contextualized to our cultural setting and sometimes to the point of compromise of, of, of biblical norms. Zane, we really appreciate your perspective on this. And what would be a final charge that you would give to the other side, to those of us who uh, I'll throw myself in this mix. Our temptation is to become theological eggheads and we need to get out and put some shoe leather on our faith, especially in terms of mission. How can we, how can we avoid that pitfall too? Well, I think one of the things that helps us as a test for our attitude is um, do I view my theological acumen as a measure of my superiority or does it produce humility? Um, do I study theology to win an argument or do I study my theology to love God and serve him better? Um, also, uh, as, as someone with a very, very high view of the sovereignty of God, uh, does my theology lead me to share the gospel more or less? Um, and am I actually out there in the messiness of church life or am I withdrawing into something of an ivory tower. Certainly the accusations that often get put, uh, get made toward people who are theologically um, very strongly inclined is either that we, we live in an ivory tower, uh, divorced from reality, or we are uh, critically divisive over things that may not be primary or even secondary issues. So we just need to make sure that we are pursuing a love of biblical precision in the same 
sort of in the same context as a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, a love for the church, and a love for the advance of the gospel around the world. It's not an either or. It needs to be a both and. Zane, how can people hear more from you, things that you've written or, or, or talks that you've given, and how can they pray for and support your ministry and the work with the IMB? Well, I would certainly point them to um, our organizational website, imb.org. Uh, we have uh, a number of, of, um, of, of blog, uh, blog lines there that, uh, that I've contributed to. And in terms of prayer, um, uh, pray that we not only would be uh, faithful to the task, but right now I would say particularly pray that we do a better job of engaging our constituency here in the States, the churches that support us, um, and involve and engage them in this work as much as we can. Zane, we thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day uh, to join us and the audience here. And we're grateful to be partners together in this work. Put an extra couple plates on the bar for me next time you're in the gym, too. Yeah, and me, too. And me, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's always fun. It's always good to talk to you. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us.